Welcome to Straight Thinking, a GPS for the Christian mind, teaching you how to think, not just what to think. This is Joe Aguirre with theologian and philosopher Kenneth Samples. Dave Rogstad is not with us uh, today. You can keep him in your prayers as he battles an illness, so we look forward to having him back soon. Thank you for uh, your prayers on that. On today's podcast, do you think worldviewishly? What does that even mean? Ken will unpack it slowly for us on part one of a series of podcasts. And Ken, this topic is uh, right up your alley. You, you have a book on it, and I'm sure we're going to be talking about it. But uh, people are interested in this topic, particularly in light of what are what's happening in our culture today. That's <clears throat> excuse me. That's exactly right, Joe. I think. I think that worldview thinking is a very valuable tool, uh, particularly for Christians. And these are topics that we have covered uh, in different ways in different times in our history of uh, straight thinking. But but I I think that uh, returning to them has value for a couple reasons. One, we have new listeners who've maybe never heard some of the content. But secondly, I, I think that this is such an important topic that uh, reviewing it is very helpful. And uh, you can get a hold of my book, A World of Difference. Uh, that is a an extended book that I wrote, was published in 2007. And it really goes pretty deep into the question of, of a worldview. So I'm hoping that some of our listeners who maybe are not familiar with the book might consider purchasing it and maybe reviewing it. If if you have a copy of World of Difference and you are a regular listener to Straight Thinking, you might want to uh, read a chapter and kind of follow along with us. So, uh, Joe, I I think that in our culture, uh, I I think something something has happened of a different nature to our culture, and I I think it's been happening for a long time. But I think right around the time of the pandemic, we started to see some some real differences in our culture and in our society. And I think a lot of it can be explained on the basis of worldview. So thinking deeply about issues and learning how to discern and reflect um, is, is not just a healthy thing for the Christian life. In many ways, Joe, I think it's necessary if you want to live in this culture and you want your life to count for Christ, then I then I think you have to use your mind. And uh, fortunately, Christians have been using their minds for centuries. And I've tried to, uh, you know, kind of summarize some of that data in my book. Very good. All right. Well, we're going to go through a, a lot of topics here that I'm sure people will find interesting. One thing right off the bat is how do we define a worldview? What is a worldview? I suspect some people have some kind of idea, but uh, you're, you're here to help us think about that. So the first question, what is a worldview? Yes, the, the, the Germans have a term called Weltanschauung, and uh, it's kind of where we get our, our English word for worldview. It's it is your big picture view of reality. That's a that's a pretty good definition of a worldview. Uh, in fact, you can take that word worldview, and it seems to have two words there, world and view. If you invert it to how you view the world, you'd have a worldview. So, so 
how people make sense of the world in which they live, how they how they kind of evaluate uh, the world in in which they live. And so it's our it's our big picture view of the world, how we how we define life and the world uh, at large. Um, people can have differing worldviews and people can see worldviews that compete. And we'll talk uh, a little bit uh, about that. But um, all of us, I think, uh, try to make sense of the world. And, th and that's really the definition, I think, of a, of a worldview. All right, good. Uh, when it comes to thinking about worldviews, is there a way to, to kind of picture this? Is there a metaphor or a symbol that helps us depict a worldview? Yes, uh, and 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 I think there probably are are different metaphors we could use. Uh, I'll mention two of them. Um, I think one of the one of the simplest ways of thinking of a worldview, Joe, is is uh, thinking of the glasses that you wear. I you know I wear reading glasses, and um, uh, it's interesting to me that everything I read. Um, and everything I see when I have my glasses on, they they have to pass through that prism. They have to pass through the lens of my glasses. And I, uh, in my book, I tell a couple stories. One story is uh, many years ago, I purchased a, a pair of sunglasses when I was watching a TV ad in the middle of the night. I was kind of <laughs> a, couldn't sleep. And so I was up and watching TV at 2.30 in the morning and uh, there was an infomercial, and it was about blue blocker sunglasses, and uh, I thought they were really cool. And uh, what was interesting about them is when I purchased them, and of course I had to, when I ordered them by the phone, I, I was kind of silent. I kept my voice down. I want my wife to wake up and discover that I was a a, a shopper in the middle of the night. But yeah. <laughs> I purchased the glasses, and what's interesting about them, Joe, is uh, I had a couple of experiences with them that were interesting that, that I think relate to worldview thinking. One was that these blue blocker sunglasses really cut down on the glare. You know, I lived at the time I lived in a little city called San Jacinto out in the desert of Southern California. And so the summers were hot and bright, and these blue blockers, they really did block the blue light. And uh, it, it seemed like reality came into sharper focus. Well, at the, I think if you have a good worldview, that is, if you have a viable worldview, if your worldview is actually bringing you closer to reality, so to speak, then I think you have that kind of experience that a good, a good pair of glasses, and think of them as worldview glasses, if you will, a good pair of worldview glasses will bring reality into sharper focus. Now, I also had some negative things to say about the blue blocker uh, glasses. I noticed over a period of time that they uh, distorted reality, they distorted color. Mm. Uh, so, for example, um, yellow looked orange. And uh, I had a hard time detecting green. Uh, when I would go up to the stoplight, uh, it, I couldn't tell whether the green light was on or not. Wow. Now that that could be problems, right? Yes. <laughs> um, so you know, maybe a defective worldview, if you will. If you hold a defective worldview, maybe a worldview that it 
doesn't bring you into sharper focus with reality, it distorts. And uh, I, I think that that's, that's a meaningful way of kind of looking at this. If you, uh, if you wanted to think of another symbol, now, of course, this is going to go back in, back in time, uh, you might think of a compass, right? Uh, years ago, people would use a compass as a means of getting direction. I, I think if maybe we brought all this up to date, you could think of a worldview as like a GPS system. Mm -hmm. uh, at least in the sense you're you're trying to track reality, you're trying to navigate uh, in the world. So you know these are analogies, and analogies are are meaningful and and uh, helpful. Uh, so those are two ways of kind of looking at it. And um, I I like the the glasses. I mean. Uh, what I like about it is the lenses of a worldview glass interprets everything you see. And I think mm. that's, that's a meaningful way of thinking about a worldview. Mm. Yeah. Now, did you, a practical question, did you have to take off your glasses anytime you approached a stoplight or I, did you memorize where, where the green and red were or what? <laughs> well, when I first started doing it, it was like kind of strange, you know, like, mm. Wow. Uh, and and again, having colors that get distorted when I would see I knew something was yellow, but it, it looked orange. And I thought that can't be right. Uh, but there were times I'd have to look above my lenses to make sure, hey, that green light really uh, is there. But, you know, that's interesting because a pair of lenses can can influence the way you see particular things. And I think that's right. I think if you hold a Christian worldview, as opposed to, let's say, a very secular, naturalistic worldview, or maybe an Eastern mystical worldview, I think when you are uh, experiencing things in life, Joe, and you have a different worldview lens on, you're going to come to different conclusions. Mm -hmm. And what I think is very meaningful about this is, you know, learning about worldviews kind of allows you to ask yourself, well, you know, how would somebody who holds a, how would somebody who holds a very different view of reality, how would they view certain things? And, and I also think it allows you to kind of step outside yourself for a moment. And, you know, we have a lot of controversial things happening in our culture. Uh, we have people, for example, who believe that marriage is between a man and a woman. Then you have other people who say, well, no, I think we ought to expand that definition to same-sex marriage. Uh, you have uh, other people who, who look at the world and say, uh, I, think, I think we should look at life through the the political prism of race, gender, and, and, and class. Other people say, no, I think we should look at the traditional categories of truth, goodness, and beauty. Well, I, I think what worldview thinking does for us, Joe, is it, is it allows us to step outside of ourselves and say, well, why would another person look at this reality differently? And that may help us in many ways. It, it may help us to say, look, I can be a little bit more tolerant because I realize they have a different lens. They're looking at the world through a different lens. And I think it also gives us an opportunity to say, uh, 
this is how I might approach somebody who holds a very different perspective. And of course, from a Christian point of view, that's really important. I mean, we believe in the Great Commission. The Lord himself commissioned his church, and we're part of his church to go out into the world and to and to preach the gospel. So understanding the ideas uh, that other people hold and how they relate to the gospel is is a very, I think, a very important part of being a disciple. Mm, yeah, uh, we'll get into more of uh, uh, what uh, how this cashes out uh, because you have worldview tests, but that that's coming up um, later, perhaps in another podcast. But another question that might come up is somebody let's say we're engaging with somebody and we're talking about uh, this idea of having a worldview, that person might respond, you know what? Uh, I don't get all fancy and come up with terms like that. Uh, it's for me, it's just live and let live. So I guess the question would be, does everyone have a worldview, Ken? I, I think that that is a very important question. And um, I, I think the answer to that question is that, that everybody has a, kind of a basic worldview. Everybody kind of makes sense of reality. Now, uh, some people could have a very underdeveloped worldview. They they haven't given a lot of thought to, you know, this kind of conceptual scheme, uh, this big picture view of reality. You know, some people live their life in very pragmatic terms. Hey, I get up, go to work, you know, come home, have fun, you know, uh, whatever, whatever that is. And I, I don't, want to think about the big uh, picture of reality. Well, um, they might have an underdeveloped worldview. Uh, I, I think I think too, you know you have uh, you have special needs children. Maybe a child uh, that has uh, experienced Down syndrome um, where it would be very difficult for them to kind of think in these complex philosophical ways. But to some degree, whatever they they have, uh, they're making sense of reality, and uh, I I think I think in some ways uh, you're right. I mean, America, I think America has always had a, a sense of pragmatism. That uh, I remember my dad, you know, when I told him I wanted to be a philosopher, you know, his first question was, "How much money does it pay?" Um, my dad was very practical. Uh, you got to make, you got to earn a living, son. You got to, got to work. You got to put a, a roof over your head. Got to have food in the refrigerator. I think if you would have asked my dad uh, whether he loved his son Ken, I think that's how my dad would say. Well, does he have clothing on his back? Does he? Do I provide food for him? Don't ask me these these unimportant questions. Of course, I love him. Uh, nevertheless. Uh, what's practical or what's workable or what's useful, I think by and large has a lot to do with that broader question of worldview. So generally speaking, I think everybody has a worldview, but I think a lot of people have underdeveloped worldviews and they don't think deeply uh, about some of those big issues, maybe until something happens like a death in the family. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, maybe they are the victim of a crime and they begin to think, how, why did this happen to me? Uh, you know, so, sometimes when we have those very painful, when we encounter suffering, then we start to ask 
why is the world the way it is? Hmm. Yeah. Well, that leads nicely to the next question, which is where do worldviews come from? Some people may uh, adopt them, as you note, by uh, encountering a crisis moment in, in their lives, but maybe others have not had that kind of thing happen. Or I suppose some people who have been around on the planet for a while have lived through some uh, great events in the world, 9-11 in, in America, or the pandemic globally. So where do they come from? Yeah, I want to give you a quotation here from my book, uh, A World of Difference. This is from Patrick J. Hurley. Pat Hurley uh, was a professor of logic, uh, taught at San Diego University in San Diego. That's a Catholic university. And he was the author of uh, the book, A Concise Introduction to Logic. So I've used that book a great deal in my teaching. Here's what Hurley says about a worldview. He says, beginning in infancy, our worldview emerges quietly and unconsciously from enveloping influences, culture, language, gender, religion, politics, and social economic status. As we grow older, it continues to develop through the shaping forces of education and experience. I think that that's a very helpful and uh, meaningful way of kind of thinking that um, in many ways, Joe, our worldview, we adopt it from our parents. Now, not totally. I mean, uh, you know, your, your parents are at a certain socioeconomic level. Um, you, you have differing educational type of experiences. You know, I, I think of, uh, I think of uh, an American president that, whose life I've studied very closely was John F. Kennedy. Uh, they said that Kennedy was born into a family that they were so wealthy. This goes back to uh, Joseph Kennedy, uh, President Kennedy's father. They said that when Joe Kennedy died in 1969, he had more than $660 million. Now, today, that would be about three or four billion. Mm. Uh, they said that JFK uh, probably never made a bed, never cooked his own food. Uh, he had uh, servants. Um, that's a very different uh, lifestyle than the vast majority of us live. On the other hand, Joe, uh, after President Kennedy was killed, his brother Robert said that uh, Kennedy had suffered a great deal in his life. He had Addison's disease. Uh, he had severe back problems. Um, uh, Robert Kennedy, the attorney general, said that after his brother was murdered, he said that my brother probably lived half of his life in severe pain. Mm -hmm. So here is an individual that probably had a very different lifestyle in terms of economics. But in terms of suffering, I mean, JFK was given the last rites of the Catholic Church three times. Wow. So there you have somebody uh, who has a worldview, you know, from the socioeconomic status, he's in the top 1%. But in terms of suffering, everybody suffers. No, nobody, avoids, uh, nobody avoids the cemetery. It's, right. it's on all of our, you know, our, our radar. Now, um, you know, as I think about what uh, Hurley has said here, I think some of these factors are, are more important than others. Uh, you know, for example, I think 
religious or non-religious education, whether whether you're born into a religious family, Joe, you and I were born into Catholic families, and to some degree or another, Catholicism influenced and shaped us. Going to a Catholic school, going to being part of a Catholic parish. I remember as a small boy going to my first Catholic uh, funeral and seeing the coffin brought into the church in front of the altar and then smelling incense. And and uh, it, it was like pageantry. And mm-hmm. I was, again, five years old. I didn't understand much about it, but I thought something significant is happening here. I think that religious training, and uh, again, Joe, you and I have certain commonalities. We both have been influenced by the Reformed theological tradition as adults. Um, We think of catechism. We think of children being taught uh, the fundamental views of the faith. Well, I I think whether you have religious training or non-religious training, and and that influences you too, um, I think it's probably more important uh, than things like social factors, your your gender or your socioeconomic class. Um, religion, after all, theology, that's getting into the question of how do we how do we make sense of of reality? So I think to answer that very good question about uh, you know uh, where does a worldview come from? I, I think often, probably most of the time, it's adopted. We we take on our parents' worldview, but then later as we grow older, uh, then our own choices begin to impact. And of course, uh, one thing that I've seen, I think, uh, I, I think this is a, a prominent phenomenon over the last couple decades, is people who now identify themselves as post-Christian, or uh, I have deconverted. I see that on Twitter a lot, social media, where people say, I'm a former Christian. Well, uh, obviously, they believe something. And at some point, they said, that's not for me. I don't believe that anymore. So a worldview is usually adopted, but it can also be decided by your own particular choices. Yeah. Uh, well, for someone who thinks they might have an underdeveloped worldview, uh, let's say they're not a Christian, or a Christian is talking to somebody who's not a Christian, they, and the, the answer comes back, I'm not sure if I have a worldview, but maybe mine is underdeveloped. Uh, is there a way to, to find out what they have? I don't want to get too too far ahead of the game, but yeah, uh, can someone recognize that they have a developing worldview? I think so. I was interesting this morning, Joe, before our program, I was uh, I was checking my Facebook page and I I posted an article that I had written about uh, about analogies and the Trinity. And uh, I gotten a question from a, a person and she said, uh, she said, uh, you know, I've I I saw your photograph on Facebook where you said, Here's half of my shelf about St. Augustine. I've I've got probably 100, 125 different books about St. Augustine, either books that he wrote, like the Confessions, the City of God on the Trinity, or books about him. Uh, and, you know, I've spent the last 30 years in, in some ways thinking about Augustine and his influence and uh, 
what's what's interesting to me, Joe, is I think I think the the whole almost the entire Western branch of Christendom, the Western Church, is deeply influenced by Saint Augustine. So he, why have I been interested? Because he's a mover and a shaker. He's a sh- he is a shaper of orthodoxy. Now, it's interesting that the lady said to me. She said, uh, "I grew up uh, in a in a Baptist church. I don't even know what a church father was. Um, uh, you know, I d- didn't have a lot of information about church history, and, and I don't even know why would you need to know anything about a church father? Why would you read a book about Saint Augustine? Why not just read the Bible?" Well. Um, I think in some respects, uh, we have a lot of evangelical Christians today who don't know a lot about church history, and they don't know a lot about formal theology. Uh, if 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 we began to talk about Christianity in terms of doctrine, like what's your what's your view of God, what's your view of human nature, uh, how how do how do those theological views differ from Jews and and Muslims. Um, you know, we, we, we could ask further questions like, uh, okay, I, I grew up in a contemporary Baptist church, but what did I miss? And I, I think in some respects, Joe, and uh, uh, I don't want to blame this on Protestantism per se, but I do think a lot of evangelicals are kind of brought up in their churches, and they have the Bible, and then they have their own contemporary experience, and they don't don't have any connecting component to it, um, which I would call church history. Um, I think that when you start to ask those kinds of questions, like, like, what is my view of God? What is the Christian view of God? And how, it's, how is it different from Jews and Muslims or Hindus and Buddhists? Or what's my view of the world? And how does that differ? And how about ethics? You know, most Christians think that abortion is wrong. Why? Why do they think it's wrong? I think most Christians recognize that marriage, traditional marriage, is between a man and a woman. Why? Why would somebody ever view that, you know, differently? So I think I think we live at a time, and maybe this has always been the case to some degree, but I think we live at a time where people have very underdeveloped worldviews. And they don't uh, they they believe in the Trinity and the incarnation and the atonement and the resurrection, but they don't have any idea how those ideas were shaped and developed and why we defend them the way we do. Yeah. So that's that's kind of a, a, an experience of, of being underdeveloped. And I would simply say, look, I think the more you know about your faith, then I think you could have greater success in fulfilling the commandments of God, loving God with all that you are, being discerning and being obedient, and 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 having the capacity to say, "Hey, I'm not going to be manipulated or deceived by things that are that are not biblical, that are not Christian." So, I think as a teacher, 
I almost assume that people have underdeveloped worldviews. Mm. Wow. All right. Well, that's all the more reason to listen to this podcast and share it with somebody who, who can use some help. Um, you've already been talking about some of this, but let's ask the question deliberately. That is, what are the essential components that make up a worldview? Yeah, this is an important point. Um, uh, I, I think we can. I, I think we can think of a worldview as being like a cluster of beliefs uh, that a person holds about what I would consider to be the most important concepts of life. So, as I alluded to before, your view of God. I think your view of God is absolutely critical. This is one of the reasons I argue so vigorously about God being love, that the Trinity means that God is love in himself. He doesn't, uh, unlike unlike Jehovah of the Jehovah's Witnesses or Allah of Islam, God is unity and diversity. God is like, analogous to a loving family. Well, what's your view of God? Um, you know, in the pagan world, you would appease the gods. You try to try to escape their their wrath. You know, they they may be erratic. I mean, even in Islam, Allah can reverse Himself. It's kind of staggering when you think that He can just uh, change. Well, knowing your God, knowing who He is, your your view of the world. There were one of the great heresies. I say great because it was deeply influential. I guess I should say the most destructive, at least one of them, was, was Gnosticism. That uh, matter is evil and spirit is good. You know, if matter is evil, what does that do to the created world? What does that do to the incarnation? What does that do to the, the crucified body of our Lord Jesus Christ? And it changes salvation. Um you know, you have secret knowledge, gnosis, so you want to escape the body. Well, that's a that means that a heresy changes the very nature of, of Christianity. So, Joe, we can think of a worldview as a cluster of beliefs. And again, I would identify God, your view of God, the cosmos, knowledge, values, humanity, and history. But I also want to talk about another component here, because the way I've been describing a worldview is as kind of a conceptual system. You know, it, it's kind of a web, if you will, a cluster, a web of beliefs. So I've, I have uh, only spoken of worldview in that context. You could think of a worldview a little differently. Uh, for example, you could think of the worldview in terms of a, of a of successive events. For example, I could say the Christian worldview involves creation, fall, redemption, consummation. So some, in some ways we could think of, of the broad sweep of a worldview in terms of Christianity, that these are these major categories or events, creation, God creates the world, human beings, the universe, Something goes cataclysmically wrong, Genesis 3, Adam and Eve's rebellion, the fall, original sin. Uh, why do we struggle in life? Um, why can't we just stop sinning? Then, of course, the, the great event, God, the second person of the Trinity, comes into the world. And on the cross, 
dies a death of sacrifice, atonement. Uh, people are saved by, not by their works, but by the actions of Christ as the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And then that final step of consummation, the return of the Lord, uh, an eternal state, and new creation. You know, our colleague Dave will sometimes say, what, what will the physics be in that new creation? Well, you could think of worldview that way. And then there's another way, and I probably should have talked about this in a world of difference. Uh, if I were to redo the book, I would add this. And, and that is that you could think of a worldview rather than as a, a conceptual system, Joe, you could think of it in terms of like a story. Uh, for example, two of my favorite authors are C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, in Narnia and in Middle-earth, they are giving you a story and depicting it in an imaginative way, and they're giving you a worldview. So you, you don't have to think of it conceptually. I mean, that's natural to me as a philosopher. I think, oh, that makes perfect sense. But you could also approach it other ways. And, and I think there are many people who have read Lewis and Tolkien, and they're getting a lot of worldview, but they're getting it in the form of a narrative. It's a story that kind of works that way. So I think what's valuable here is that you can get to worldview through different means. Mm -hmm. And certainly Lewis and Tolkien, they have a view of God. They have a view of the world, of human beings and ethics and all of those kinds of things. Uh, but for many people, they'd rather read an engaging novel than sit in a philosophy class uh, you know, that engages in the conceptual scheme of, of things. I think it's important to understand all three of those. Mm, yeah. it's, it's a cluster. It's a series of events. It's a narrative. Uh, Ken, the way you, you described it right now uh, of telling a story, in this sense, could we look at the four Gospels as a way to impart a worldview to us? Because we have a story being told there. I think so. Uh, I definitely think so. I mean, um, I've I've often wondered what why why did the the apostles why did the authors of the the gospels why did we end up with four gospels and why are they both alike and different? Um, I think the Christian worldview narrative is given to us uh, in the New Testament. It, we are uh, we are confronted with creation. We are confronted with our fallen nature. Uh, and then there is a lot of information that focuses particularly on the life, the personhood, the teaching of the Messiah, the Son of God. I, I recently on my vacation reread the Gospels, and uh, I, one of the things I was struck by was the people who are really sure they know the identity of Jesus are the demons. They immediately say, this is the Holy One of God. This is the Son of God. Why are you here before judgment? Uh, and I think, wow, you know, there, there are people who are puzzled about Jesus and his identity. Is he a prophet? Is he a great teacher? You know, is are you saying you're God? 
but Jesus tells the demons essentially, get out and shut up. Mm. Uh, it's it's not it's not my, yet my time to reveal all of that, but mm. that's that's a powerful thing. And I think you're exactly right. I think that the narrative, the story of the life of Jesus, and and again, it's it's in the context of creation, fall, redemption, and and consummation, and so. Yeah, I think the four Gospels, in some respects, are intended to, to give us this narrative in four ways. And, and again, they all have a lot in common, but yet they also have their own distinctive features. Ken, hmm. another question on uh, the essential components. Uh, you've listed knowledge uh, as, as one of those components that make up a worldview. Uh, what do we mean by that? That is, people could be encountering uh, people in their lives who are of a scientific background and uh, they're all about acquiring knowledge. Do we mean acquisition of knowledge or what we do with that knowledge or what is knowledge? I guess I'm asking, what, why is knowledge there? Yeah, th that's a very helpful uh, question, Joe. And I, and I think we can expand this. So that, that initial cluster for me would be God, the world, knowledge, ethics, human beings, and history. But, but uh, in my book, I kind of expand it. I, for example, I talk about ultimate reality. Uh, you know, what kind of God exists? And then I talk about the external reality. Uh, is there anything beyond the cosmos, for example? When I get to knowledge, I ask the question, what can be known and how can anyone know it? Th that is, as a created human being, how do, how do we know things? How can we be assured that we know particular things? Uh, has, has our fallen condition affected our view of, of knowledge? And then, and then what does it mean to know something as, a, as opposed to, you know, to have uh, an opinion? How does knowledge differ from, you know, belief? Uh, and of course, all of those are things are factored in. I, I again continue the expansion. I talk about you know, the origin, where did I come from? My identity, who am I? Uh, the location, where am I? Where do I find myself in the world uh, uh, on this particular planet? And then I look at the question of morality. Should, you know, how should I live? My values, what, what, should I, what should I value? What's my predicament? What are my fundamental problems in life as a human being? How are those problems resolved? And, and then I look at both past and present. What's the meaning and direction of history? And then finally, will I survive the death of my body? In mm -hmm. what state? I mean, the Christian worldview has a lot to say about the past, the present, and the future. And in fact, Joe, I think one of the mistakes we make when we think about end times, eschatology and prophecy is I think a lot of people think of that only in terms of the future. I think eschatology, the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel, these apocalyptic books that are part of the, the, the biblical uh, narrative, the biblical books, I think they have things to teach us about the past, the present, and the future. For example, very common among uh, people who hold an amillennial perspective, they would say, already not yet. Christ has come already. 
and yet he has not come in in all of his glory. So we're we're at a particular place. He's already come the past. He is, will come in the future, and then we're in that middle position. So again, I think worldview thinking really helps you to think about the Christian worldview, to think about the big picture. The, the big issues of life, and then to think distinctively Christian. Because uh, as we'll see as we go forward in our discussion of worldviews, Eastern mysticism has a very different worldview. Um, Islamic theism has some common ground with Christianity, but it also has some very distinctive differences. And of course, the secularists have a very different view. Um, and so I think I think becoming a, a student, you know, and, and if you think about that in a Christian context, Joe, a disciple is a learner. Mm. Uh, to be a Christian is is to be a student. Uh, what is it that I believe? Who is my teacher? Where is the source of authority? And how do I then live out my my life. I think many of the things that ails the modern church um, comes back to this idea of of building disciples. And I, I think one of the great things about the history of our faith is that people in the past have faced a lot of the same things we've faced, and they have a lot of lessons to teach us, either in failure or in success. So I think that this has a lot of uh, value. And, and again, I want to encourage people. Um, I, I think a lot of people, Joe, and I wonder if you've experienced this, when you talk with people about Christianity, for some people, it's, it's almost exclusively their own personal experience. Mm -hmm. uh, that is, I met the Lord. Uh, you know, I accepted Jesus as my savior when I was seven years old, or I accepted Jesus after, you know, I was, I was strung out on drugs and somebody gave me the four spiritual laws and the Lord saved me. Well, I don't in any way want to diminish any of that. I think that is a great testimony and, uh, is very meaningful, not only to those individuals, but often for others to hear those but then there is also Christianity as a world movement. Uh, what happened to the church when Jesus ascended into heaven? How did how was Jesus's authority? Uh, how did the church develop? Uh, how does how does historic Christianity express itself? So I, I think being a student is awfully important. And, and again, it comes back to loving God with your mind. I, I know at times some people think, boy, that sounds very snobby, you know, to say that you need to be a thinker, you need to be a student. What about just, you know, real sincere love and, and being a compassionate and kind person? Well, I'm all for that. I'm all for compassion and kindness and love. And, and, I, and I think that there's often a, a, a false dichotomy between people of the intellect and then people of, you know, compassion. I, I don't want one or the other. I want both and. 
But I, I do think there's a real tendency in many circles to think of Christianity in in exclusively your personal experiences. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of things have happened between the ascension of Jesus and today. Mm, yeah. Another question I have, as you've been about how the Christian, Christian theistic worldview answers life's big questions, uh, one of them there is of human beings. I wonder on this idea of having an underdeveloped worldview, if there are people who borrow from the Christian worldview, that is, they value human life and they think we ought to care for human beings all around the globe, however however we can help them. Um, but why should we value human beings? Do, do people borrow and can you do that and still be consistent, I suppose, in a worldview or, or is, is that, or does that change the rules of the game? Well, this concept of, of what some people would call borrowed capital, I think is a very interesting concept and idea. Uh, a number of years ago, uh, Joe, I, I read a very long tome. It was uh, entitled Dominion by Tom Holland. Holland is a, uh, a scholar of ancient antiquity. He's a uh, scholar of the Greco-Roman world in the ancient uh, history. Um, I, I think either Oxford or Cambridge uh, was his place of education. Brilliant man. Uh, I had to go through this very long book and not easy to read and a lot of ideas. Uh, Tom Holland grew up Christian, rejected Christianity as as a young man. Uh, He studied Christianity. And one of the things that really jumped out at me was here is a secular guy who refers to himself as an atheist. Yet I really got the impression he understood Christian theology. I don't often get that impression. Uh, when I engage secular people, uh, often I think there are gaps in their understanding of, of Christian theology. Holland got it. After At the end of this book, he says, you know, I'm, I call myself an atheist, and I am uh, a specialist in, in the Roman world. Uh, but he said, you know what? After I studied Western civilization, I've come to the conclusion that in my ethics, I'm not an atheist. I'm a Christian. Hmm. Well, um, I think I think it is very common for people to want to to adopt things they see in Christianity. Joe, I think the other religions of the world have encountered the story about Jesus, and sometimes it's changed the religions. Uh, people have heard about this individual Jesus. You know, some might say, "Well, he's." Yeah, you're right. He's this amazing, godly person. Therefore, he's one of the, uh, he's an avatar along with Krishna and others. Or a person may come along in Buddhism and say, yeah, we need a more compassionate form of Buddhism that's like Christianity. I think what we're seeing here is Jesus is such a profound soul. Uh, in his teaching, in his miracles, in the, his his strength of facing uh, life, death. I think he has changed not only Western civilization, but everything. 
And, and I think the idea of people being made in the image of God and having dignity and value, that's changed. People come along and say, I want that. I'm not sure I want not sure I want your church, and I probably definitely don't want other Christian people, but I like your Jesus, and I like the ideas. And and Tom Holland actually started going to church. I, I don't know if he is or ever will be a Christian, but I think that's a powerful point that he said, look, uh, the reason we've gotten rid of slavery, the reason why people think in terms of having dignity and value is because of the Judeo-Christian Bible. Wow. That's that's borrowed capital. Okay, very good. All right. Well, that answers that question. Um, I'm not sure if you want to pick up some more. We have lots of material for uh, another podcast, Ken. What, what are you thinking? Well, you know, I I, I want to encourage our listeners because you're exactly right. We've got a we've got a lot of data that we can cover, but I I kind of want to encourage our listeners to again about this worldview. It's it's not just to buy my book. There are a number of books out there on on worldview, but I I think Joe that these ideas we've been talking about, and again in our next program we we can. Uh, move forward in looking at these issues. But I, I, I think to think worldviewishly, if you will, it, it helps us to understand what we believe. It helps us to understand what other people believe. And I think it helps us to kind of make sense of the culture in which we live. Uh, you know, you've got, you've got babies who are in the womb. Where do they get their dignity and value? Are they non-humans, non-persons who are developing toward humanity and personhood? Or, no, are they human and therefore their very nature as human beings means that they have dignity and value in personhood and, and their, their dignified personal souls that are growing toward a, a place where they will be born and they will live their life. Well, those those two ideas are really different worldviews. You know, when when a when 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 a woman would say, uh, "I have a right to do what I want with my own body, and I don't want other people telling me what to do. Particularly, I don't want men telling me what to do." Um, I, I think in many respects, they're reflecting a worldview. And to, to be able to look at our culture and make sense of it and navigate and, and ask, what is my part to play in the world in which I, I live? I think that worldview thinking can be very meaningful. Uh, the book that I worked on and was published in 2007 by Baker Books uh, Joe, I think that's one of the one of the most important books I've written. It, I think it is a foundational text, and I think it's one that um, you know it, it it can be the book at the bottom where you build other books around it. And so I mean, I'm hoping our our uh, listeners might dust off that copy of A World of Difference or go on Amazon and get a new one and. Mm -hmm. uh, Read along with us. Yeah. You can also get one at reasons.org if yeah. you go to our store and type in a world of difference. 
uh, you'll find it there. Great stuff, Ken. Look forward to talking more about this. Uh, we can look forward to uh, the next podcast. You're going to talk about some major worldview systems today. And then there are uh, worldview tests as well. So something to look forward to on the next podcast. Um, in the meantime, people have been uh, reading your books, Ken, and not just this one, but other ones. And they've been letting you know via social media about it. Here are a few comments that have come in. Uh, this one says, Ken, I've read my copy of your book without a doubt at least four times. Wow. I am without a doubt. That's, that's, that's I like uh, it. nice to hear four times. Yeah. yeah. I'm, sure, I'm sure it has uh, really sunk in by now. Uh, here's another one. That was from Kelly Quigley, by the way. Yep. Uh, here's another one. Ken, hearing the success of your books, reaching more people through translations uh, into other languages makes me so happy. Knowing more people will be introduced to the truth of who Jesus is brings me joy. We need more joy. I thank God that you wrote these. Karen Payne. Mm -hmm. That's a kind note there. And let's uh, find one more here. Uh, Ken, your book, Classic Christian Thinkers, was like a wingman that introduced me to many more loves, a matchmaker book that launched me into the great classic Christian tradition, Chris Camp. Yeah. Well, you know, that book, Classic Christian Thinkers, uh, that was my very goal, Joe. And you know you were one of the editors of that book. I, I introduced these great Christian thinkers, but they've got books they've written that you you definitely want to go towards. Mm. And uh, that's that's great. I, I love hearing that. Thank you for those comments. Keep them coming. You can reach Ken via his Twitter handle, at RTB underscore case samples. Don't miss any episodes of Straight Thinking. You can subscribe to the Reasons to Believe podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify, and you'll get an episode delivered to you each week. All right, that's going to wrap it up for Ken Samples. This is Joe Aguirre with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory, but truth. Thanks for listening, and join us for the next edition of Straight Thinking. Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ, our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at Reasons.org.